0: In weird ways, I think we need to just admit that authoritarian leadership alleviates some of the burden of being leaders because a lot of the thinking, a lot of the debating, the working together, the compromising never happens. It's one person telling everyone how it's going to go. Unfortunately, as I said, that leads to uh, exclusion. It leads to usually very bad leadership choices, and it leads to an environment that stifles any kind of expression, any kind of sense of equity any kind of sense of people sharing in the enterprise as those who can voice their concerns or their pain or their needs. Authoritarians don't allow for that. That makes it problematic in any setting.
1: Do you know if you've ever been a part of a cultish or high-demand community? And do you know what qualities to look for in a high-demand community? And suppose you ever left a cultish or high-demand community, I suspect if that's the case... went through a period of feeling disoriented and disillusioned after experiencing what felt like a deep connection and community. Now, high demand communities may bring images of cults with extreme behaviors, demands, and rituals to your mind. But when you examine the communities you love, some fall into the spectrum of cultish or high demand communities, We often choose these communities to further our personal and professional development, like a faith community, or a recovery community, or a work or fitness community, or even a professional community aligned by a certain methodology or theory, like in psychotherapy. When you know the signs of a cultish or high demand community, you get clear on how to discern if the group welcomes you as you are, or if you're belonging depends on you're following the group norms or you risk being shunned. And one of the big tells of a high-demand or cultish community shows up when you're exiled if you choose to leave to go on your own journey of exploration, questioning, and change. I'm Rebecca Ching and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. When you see the signs of a high demand or cultish community, you really can't unsee it. And in her must-read book, Cultish, The Language of Fanaticism, Amanda Montell shares in great detail with many familiar examples how language is used to coerce, discourage deeper analysis, and cultivate a heightened emotional state while judging those considered outsiders. Amanda believes the key to cultivating intense ideology, community, and that us, them, with us, against us attitudes are built through specific language. In both positive ways and dangerous ways, Cultish language is something we all hear and are influenced by every single day. And Amanda writes in her book, the fact is that most modern day movements leave enough space for us to decide what to believe, what to engage with, and what language to use to express ourselves. Tuning into the rhetoric these communities use and how its influence works for both good and not so good can help us participate however we choose with clearer eyes. Now, cultish and high demand communities fall on a spectrum and not everyone associated with a group or organization with those tendencies necessarily falls into the trance of these spaces. But many of us do without even noticing, especially if you join a group or an organization during your formative years and trust those who lead you while feeling the love and belonging offered it can be seductive it can be healing it can be grounding until it isn't and for me looking back on my life i clearly see my love of high energy communities that can tip into high demand cultures for me i go all in with the spaces and organizations i choose they're Really isn't much low key about how much I love sports teams or certain fitness groups and and my faith community and theoretical approaches to my work. I am a proud member of the Peloton fitness community and before the pandemic I was a evangelist for Orange Theory and our local Spark Cycle Fit group fitness classes. And professionally, I've been all in with the communities that influence my clinical and leadership practices like Brene Brown's The Daring Way and the Internal Family Systems community founded by Richard Schwartz. In my earlier years, I worked in politics, you know, the campaign side and the legislative side where I worked hours and hours advocating for causes I believed in for low pay, but held deep meaning. And I've been a part of various faith communities since graduating high school that offered connection, community, and healing. I even went to work for a parachurch organization for four years, raising money that went towards supporting the work I did and my salary. So like I said, I'm usually all in when I dive into something, which I think is great. I'm not a wishy-washy person. I, I jump in feet first and I commit. And all of these communities have offered something so meaningful to me, and some still do. And I see how the groups I've been a part of develop cultish tendencies, some not because of the leaders per se, but more because of the communities that develop around a person, a group, program, or an ideology. I also see how some people can lean towards more insular communities with this rigidity around purity and proficiency and polity. And then I pull back a little bit and I see other high demand groups in the fitness faith and corporate space develop more extreme rituals while pushing toxic positivity and the pressure to conform or be excluded or even worse, banished. Now, I don't like how people drop labels like cult super casually. I I appreciate the language Amanda Montel offers in her book with more nuance and complexity about the language styles of groups or organizations with many cultish qualities. Some of these communities we're in take us to a tipping point, though, where we face a crossroads with our values, our boundaries, and our identity. And it gets tricky when we face these crossroads with communities connected to our paycheck, our livelihood, and our support systems. And Amanda Montel talks about how language can get community members on the same ideological page, you know, to help them feel like they belong to something big. And when language and marketing and charisma all come together, it can get the best of us. It's often hard to identify when you're in a high demand community for some, if you know nothing else. And Today's Unburdened Leader guest really got me thinking more about the high-demand or cultish communities we choose, and his most recent book was inspired by his experience watching the January 6th insurrection on TV and wondering if he had not left his high-demand faith community, would he have been at the U.S. Capitol with many who showed up that day, some from his former community? Dr. Bradley Onishi is on the faculty of the University of San Francisco and is the co-host of the podcast Straight White American Jesus. He's also author of Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. So some light and breezy stuff, y'all. But he does it with a lot of heart and humor, along with some incredible Research and historical fact. So, in the show today, pay attention to what Brad said he left behind when he moved from his insular community in Southern California to Oxford to work on his master's. And notice when Brad talks about his definition of nostalgia and how it's being used today in rhetoric. And listen for how Brad unpacks the impact of authoritarian leadership in high demand communities and how it takes out the hard work of leadership and healthy community building. All right, y'all, please welcome Dr. Brad Onishi to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Brad, welcome to the Unburdened Leader podcast.
0: Thanks for having me. Great to be here.
1: As we were talking about before I started recording, there's so much I want to talk to you about, probably just selfishly, but we're going to we're gonna ease in. We're going to ease in. We're going to just talk about light and breezy topics today. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. Sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's what we do. We kind of just chill out here on the Unburdened Leader podcast. And I want to start off just by having you go back in time for a moment. Um, you grew up in Southern California. It's where I'm based. I didn't grow up here, but I've been here for over 20 years now. And I want you to take me back to the moment where you left Southern California to pursue a master's in Oxford, and just talk to me about what led to that decision to pursue this master's and also share what you were leaving behind
0: yeah, so I uh converted at fourteen to evangelicalism at a mega church, and so I didn't grow up religious, and so in some ways, that just made me a lot more like zealous and enthusiastic because it was all new by the time I was twenty, I was a full time minister uh, and I married my high school sweetheart. We were both in the youth ministry at this really big church. And, uh, you know, I started seminary by the time I was 22. Um, so I was really on this path to, uh, there was really two career paths for me, either missionary or pastor of a new church. And that's what we thought we wanted. Uh, you know, we got married young. We were these like youth ministers of a, of a group of like 200 kids. However, you know, you, once I got to the later, day, later stages of college and started seminary, I just started reading so much that I began to question a lot of some of the main tenets of what I'd been taught about evangelical theology and politics and the closed worldview I'd been living in. And so I just had to be very honest with myself and say, I don't think I want to be a missionary right now because I don't know exactly where I'm at. I don't think I want to be a, a minister because I'm doubting a lot of things and I need time to kind of figure this out. So I thought, you know, the best thing would be to be a professor and I could teach at a Christian college. I could teach at, you know, Zoo Pacific where I went or Westmont or any of the others in Southern California, Biola. And so I, I told my wife like, Hey, I want to get a master's degree. And she said, well, I want to keep playing basketball. She was a, a collegiate athlete. So we said, let's move to England. You can play semi-professional basketball and I will get a master's degree. So somehow I finagled and fooled and cajoled Oxford university into letting me in. But uh, my, my goal in going there was to be a theologian. And um, when I got there for the first time in my adult life, I was free to think and, and reflect and, and construct my world without any policing by like older pastors who were wondering what kind of crazy thoughts I was having or without, and, and this might just fill into being a leader. You know, I was 24 years old. I had been a leader of hundreds of people since I was 18. And it was the first time in my adult life, I didn't have the responsibility of Mm. leading hundreds of other young people. And I needed that. And so when I got there, I just sort of started to read and read and read and think and think and think. And it led me to a very different place than I expected, but yeah, it's all been pretty good thus far.
1: So yeah, just bringing it back then, what did you leave behind then when you got to Oxford and you were thinking and reading and you had space for the first time in your adult life, uh, just to, to be with these thoughts and these, you know, thinkers, what, what did you leave behind in Southern California?
0: You know, I think in one word I left behind certainty. Um, I, I had, um, so I, (laughs) um, I had social certainty. Like I lived in my hometown. Um, I was a minister at a big church. Like there was a career path ahead of me. There was a respect level. Like people, when I went to the grocery store, the kids and the their parents would say hi to me. If I went to the coffee shop, I saw three people I knew. There was a sense of like who I was and what I would be. So that's one. I also left intellectual certainty because I was free to question things that seemed untouchable before. So I'd left a worldview that all kind of was constructed in a loose way to make total sense. And all of a sudden, every beam in my house, every wall, every piece of architecture and flooring and anything related to the structure of my understanding of the world was open for deconstruction, reconstruction, questioning, testing, the whole thing. So I'm not going to lie, when I got to Oxford, um, in some sense, it was liberating. In some sense, it was incredibly terrifying to leave all of that behind.
1: What were you most afraid of as you were facing, you know, just leaving certainty. And there's a certain kind of trauma too in that. And also like, wait, what I've been told? Uh, All of a sudden, you know, all your certainty anchors were crumbling. And so, yeah, what were some of those fears as you deconstructed your faith and, and even your heritage too?
0: I think that the exhilarating part was this incredible privilege to wake up every day and for my job to be to learn. People in ministry know you're supposed to work 32 hours a week and that's what they pay you for. You actually work 52 hours and people call you at midnight and say, my kid ran away, come help me and this and that. So I, for the first time in my life, could wake up in the morning and go learn. And I was exhilarated by it. Like I couldn't wait to just go to the library and like read and, and, and reflect and, and understand. The terrifying part is you realize that if you keep going down the path that you intuitively know is the right one for you, you're leaving behind the certainty of every other aspect of your life. So you, your intellectual horizon is open to wonder. Your social horizon is like, I'm now a pariah at my old church. No one will talk mm-hmm. to me because they think I've lost it." My wife and I kind of think we should probably split, not because we hate each other, and we, uh, you know, had some terrible, ridiculous breakup, just because we'd been together since we were 14, and both of us were like, "You know, we're kind of different at 24, and our lives are changing. Do we need to be married? I love you. You love me. Uh, So that relationship ended. And my career path became well, I'm not going to be a missionary probably or a pastor. So I better make this professor thing work. Otherwise, I'm 24, 25 years old and I really have no future other than this one. So let's see if this works. So that's the terrifying part. On top of the fact that you have to tell your family and friends that your complete identity and worldview has changed, they knew you as that golden boy young minister guy who did no wrong. And now you're questioning everything you've ever been taught and they don't know how to relate to you. And those relationships all get reconfigured. They all get transformed. Some of them break, some of them heal, but it's not easy to go through.
1: So all of your relationships, like your marriage, your friends, your former colleagues, the community that you served and supported, all of a sudden, I mean, were they gone? Were they, yeah. Did they reject you or did you just kind of say, listen, I'm not even going to try? Did you try to make bids for connection?
0: I I did. I, you know, I think there was a great benefit and a great uh, disadvantage to being 6,000 miles away from home in England. Mm. The great benefit was that for the first time in my life, I felt I could just explore who I was without worrying about bumping into people who had expectations for me. And that felt great. On the other hand, you know, you move across the world and then your entire identity and beliefs change. You get divorced. Uh, you know, your, your understanding of God is different. How do you explain that to the people who are most important to you when they're 6,000 miles away? And you might talk to them once in a while or over email or over a video call. So that was hard. And, you know, I, I remember the first time I went home after all this happened and I went to the coffee shop. And I got ignored and people wouldn't look at me. And when I was in town at, you know, visiting for Christmas, there was a lot of like people walking the other way when they saw me. And so I had to kind of just come to grips with that and understand that now there were many others who reached out, asked what was happening. And we talked and were friends to this day. Um, I certainly had a lot of long discussions with my parents and with my brothers. And again, it wasn't always easy, but you know, when you love each other, you you do your best to kind of understand where everyone's at. So um, yeah, some of those relationships survived. Others were were dead on arrival because those folks just considered me to be a traitor um, who'd left the fold. And uh, that's something I just had to come to accept. Hmm.
1: Thank you for sharing that. And fast forward to January 6th and in, in the, I want to talk a little about your book and also, you know, the term white Christian nationalism, but What you talked about in the beginning of the book is, wow, if I hadn't gone to Oxford and gone through this journey, would I have been there on the Capitol, you know, with other folks waving artifacts that claim faith, claim things that for me identify with love and peace, but we'll get into that later. So you wrote this book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism. And it was inspired by the curiosity of watching January 6 unfold before your eyes. Can you take me back to that day and what was going through your mind as you were watching this unfold?
0: You know, it's January 6, 2021. I woke up that morning. I went surfing at dawn and um, I live up here in Northern California now. So it was really cold and I was like the only one in the water. But I was pretty stoked because Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff had just won Senate seats in a runoff and the Democrats were going to have control of the Senate, you know, by like one vote. And I was just feeling like a little bit optimistic about just the state of things. And I get home and open the the computer to start work. And it's just image after image, video after video of January 6th. And I think like most of us, not all, but most of us, I watched in horror, just like, how can this be happening? But I also realized quickly that, okay, 19-year-old me was so committed to this stuff. When I was in high school, my mom said, what do you want for Christmas? And I told her to take whatever money she was going to spend on Christmas and to buy Bibles through this organization and they would send them to Nepal because people in Nepal needed to hear about Jesus. That's like where I was as like a, a young man in terms of my like very extreme commitment. So like if 18 or 19 year old me has a an older mentor in the church who approaches him and says, hey, we need to fly to Washington, DC, I'm going to buy your plane ticket because we need to stand up for our country, for our faith, for what's right, are you in? I'm the kind of guy that would have been like, yeah, let's do it. That sounds right. Let's go. You know? And so as I'm watching January 6th, I'm just like, how many people who are like me got caught up in this? How many of them go to churches or converted you know, in the last few years? And they're looking for community and, and uh, meaning. And their churches f- you know, filled them with rhetoric about a stolen election and about QAnon and about you know, the need for battle, spiritual or otherwise that scared me. And, and I learned later that there were people from my hometown and churches uh, that I'd been part of that were at January 6th. So it confirmed what I had feared. And so I think that added a whole layer for me just thinking about that day.
1: I really think it's important to define terms. I think we often throw around all these terms lately, and I think that can be overwhelming for folks. I'd love for you to walk me through how you define, and you specifically talk about white Christian nationalism. So how do you define that? And then I'd love for you to share how that understanding has impacted your worldview.
0: Yeah. So let's start with Christian nationalism. Uh, Christian nationalism is, uh, there's some easy definitions. I think one is if you think that Christians should be privileged in the United States, economically, politically, socially, if you think that as a Christian, you should have privilege over others just because you're a Christian, um, that we should always have a Christian president, that we should always have a Christian majority in Congress, that you would never vote for a non-Christian, okay? So you might be a Christian nationalist if that's what you think, okay? Um, if you think that the country was built by Christians, full stop. I don't want to hear debates about the fact that, you know, Thomas Jefferson doesn't believe in miracles or James Madison thinks that, you know, religion should not enter the public sphere uh, in any or almost all cases. I just want to tell you it's a Christian nation. It should stay a Christian nation, and that means that Christians are the ones who built the country, and they, know what's right for the country. That's Christian nationalism because what you're doing is you're ignoring the fact that you have many neighbors, right? Who live in your community, who live in your country, who are not Christians, not theists. They may be Hindu. They may believe in many gods. They may be Buddhist and believe in no God. They may be secular, atheist, free thinker, whatever may be. So Christian nationalism is a desire to privilege Christians in the United States. Now, the reason that the white part is important is because there are Christian nationalists who are not white. There are black Christian nationalists, there are others, but when you ask those folks, okay, so you think this is a Christian country, how so? A lot of them will tell you, well, it's a Christian country that's never really been Christian. Uh, We had enslaved people for centuries, we had Jim Crow, we had Chinese exclusion, but you know what I'm hoping for is a Christian country that finally lives up to its billing, that one day we will be a more perfect union. So they tell you this story about like hope and moving forward, right? Coming out of Egypt into the promised land. That's the that's the kind of tenor. When you ask white folks, and this is all in sociological data, this is not just me saying, hey, I talked to three white people in my family or something. This is all like, you know, there, there's been a lot of studies on this. Not everyone, but on the whole, if you are a white Christian nationalist, you're gonna tell a story of nostalgia. The country used to be great. The country used to be wonderful. It was a city on a hill, Matthew 5. But Things got bad. And then you say, well, when did things get bad? And like 70% of white Christian nationalists will tell you they got bad in the 1960s because the 1950s were awesome. That was the, that was the renaissance of America. But in the 60s, everything went bad. And you start saying, okay, so you, you're telling me that in the 60s, when we had the Civil Rights Movement, the Civil Rights Act, immigration reform, uh, when we had uh, uh, a Voting Rights Act that prevented the poll tax and other things, when we had uh, mass women's liberation movements, queer liberation movements. I could go on and on. You're telling me that's when things went wrong? And the white Christian nationalist is like, yes, that is when things went wrong. So they're starting to tell you what kind of American society they think is great and what kind of American society they think is not great. And you're getting an image of what they want America to look like now. And so the white Christian nationalist tells a very different story and has a very different vision of America than their counterparts who are black or uh, or people of color in another way, and that's why, for me, white the white and white Christian nationalism is really important for us to talk about because they're telling a very distinct story that tends to be uh, one that uh, looks back at the fifties as the way they want life to be now, which most of us don't agree with.
1: And yet, there's this almost this intoxicating kind of this overcoming that everyone this this there's a comfort in nostalgia nostalgia can be it feels good but it's quite dangerous right and, they, and these topics you know and sometimes even to folks who you know the good old days in high school I'm like those were not the don't don't peak in high school people do not peak in high school but I digress but there's this nostalgia and this kind of infectious feeling because things are changing when when I mean the shifts in power the discomfort that brings up that many folks never had to feel because of the privilege that you talked about. And and these, and what's interesting when these rumbles are happening, and we and I have these conversations with folks that I care about too in my community. And I ask them more, they're like, but I'm a good person. I'm like, I I I didn't even say you weren't a good person. I want to know more. Tell me more. I don't understand if if you think this is bad, then but this is the outcome of this. How but I'm I'm not a bad person. And so there's almost this this tenderness you know, around identity, like, you know, I'm not a bad person and it really was better back in the Mm fifties. I don't know. Can you, can you talk a little Mm -hmm. bit more about that?
0: I have some thoughts on nostalgia. Nostalgia and history are not the same. So I think your high school example is a really great one, right? Like, I don't know about everyone listening. I I think back at high school and I'm like, there were some really fun things about being 18. My back didn't hurt when I woke up. That was great. Uh, (laughs) My knee didn't pop for no reason. Um, my uh, I was 15 pounds lighter, uh, my friends and I went surfing all the time, uh, we didn't have to worry about taxes or 401ks or, um, you know, we didn't have parents who were aging, a lot of us, you know, not, not all of us, but, you know, there was just, there was a sense of, oh, wow, that was great. And so what I can do then is I can generate a nostalgic view of high school and say, that was the good old days, that was the golden days, life will never be the same, I wish we could get back to that. And then I remember, oh, yeah, high school was this time of like great uncertainty. And my, you know, my sense of self was in formation. And there was high school, which was a whole bastion of like, you know, sharp objects and things that were not easy. And there was a lot of hormones and like not understanding my body and my life and my parents and blah, 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 blah. And if we're honest, it was the good old days and it was like the bad old days. It was both. But nostalgia doesn't give you that. What nostalgia does is it gives you a myth of the past. It Ooh. invents a past. Nostalgia is an invention of what was so you can motivate what can be. You're like, hey, it used to be like this. Let's make it like that again. The problem with that equation is that it was never like that. That when you tell me the 1950s were so great, I'm like, okay, so were they great for the black folks living under or Jim Crow? Okay. How about like the Japanese folks in my family that were put in camp in the forties during World War II? All right, how about women who were in uh, marriages and they couldn't get divorced because no-fault divorce laws were like kind of hampering the fact that that was going to be difficult unless they had some some reasons that uh, allowed for it. What about interracial marriages in dozens of states where if you were of different races, it was illegal to get married? Was this great for everybody or just certain people? I'll give you another example. I have friends who will tell me that the pandemic was actually kind of a nice breather for them, right? They're like, you know, during the pandemic, I got to work from home. I don't have kids. I didn't have to commute. I didn't have to go do a lot of social functions that I don't like to do because I'm introverted. A lot, like I have a friend or two that's like, pandemic, loved it. Got to be at home all the time. No kids. Didn't spend a lot of money because I wasn't out doing stuff. Didn't have to sit in traffic. I, after work, I had more time. I would like read and go to the gym or I would go on a hike. And what I would tell that person is, hey, I totally get it. Pandemic seemed kind of like a nice breather for you, but you're totally with me, right? Like a million people died and like a lot of kids couldn't go to school for two years and it was really tough for them. And we could go on and on about how this was just really hard. And my friend will be like, for sure. I'm not saying I want to go back to the pandemic just because it was good for me doesn't mean it was good for everybody. So I'm not going to turn the pandemic into the golden age of my life Mm. or anyone else's, even though it was actually kind of breezy for me and really excruciating for many others. When people tell me the 1950s was better, what I hear is it was easier for you because you didn't have to reflect on things, you didn't suffer marginalization like many others did. So when you wanna go back to that, I feel like you're just ignoring the pain and the exclusion that so many felt in favor of just you wanting to feel comfortable. And you can see why a lot of us just don't see your comfort as more important than uh, inclusion and equality.
1: Period. (laughs) Circling back to then the term white Christian nationalism and why, how has this impacted your personal understanding of this worldview and your own worldview? Like what's shifted for you?
0: You know, when I left uh, my church, it was 2005. When I got to Oxford, it was 2005. I stayed there a couple years. And I think I would have told you in 2010 or 2015, 2020, Hey, I, I'm I'm an ex-evangelical. I used to be an evangelical, no more. Just not part of my, you know, it's not who I am anymore. Okay, great. I think what I've had to come to grips with is that I'm an ex-Christian nationalist, and I'm mixed race. But I, you know, I'm my dad's Japanese American. But I'll say that I'm a, I'm an ex-white Christian nationalist because my mm-hmm. church was not an overtly political one. It wasn't one of these where there were, uh, you know, political candidates coming to preach or anything. But we were imbued with this ideology that God and country were together. We were the real Americans. The country would be better if everyone returned to church and the government allowed schools to mandate prayer and schools to mandate Bible reading. And um, we need a Christian president. Could you ever vote for a godless heathen like Bernie Sanders or a Jewish person or a Hindu person? No way. Much less Barack Obama. He's a Muslim, blah, blah, blah. Right? It's a lot harder to say I used to be a Christian, right? There's a lot of folks who these days are like, yeah, ex-evangelical. Now I'm atheist, Catholic. Now I'm something else. Mm, Mainline. No problem. All right, cool. When you say ex-Christian nationalists, you're like, wow, that didn't feel good. Um, okay. And you know what it does? And I think this is actually really important for everyone, is it makes you realize that Christian nationalism is not just extremist, right? Like it's easy to think, oh, Christian nationalists, you mean dudes who are in militias or people storming the Capitol, or people who want to outlaw being um, gay, right? And it's actually so much more imbued in our everyday than we think, that if you are sitting in church and someone says, you know, we'd be a lot better off if uh, we put prayer back in schools and every kid in this place, in this country, had to read the Bible every day. Well, that's I'm sorry, that's Christian nationalism. Like, You're forcing the Hindu kid, the atheist kid, the Buddhist kid to read a religious text. That's Christian nationalism. There's a lot of like really nice 50-year-old ladies at churches and like 36-year-old dads of two at churches who are good people trying their best, but they're holding those Christian nationalist views. And, and here's the part that really worries me increasingly when they go to church, when they listen to their their podcasts, when they go to their YouTube channels, when they, they read their books, the leaders in their lives are telling them Christian nationalist ideas, right? Like passing laws um, where the 10 commandments have to be hung in schools and this and that are the only way to get the country back. So they're being told by influ- influencers in their life that they need to actually increase their belief in this this intimacy between Christianity and the federal government or any government. Um, and that that's what worries me. So it's it, the ownership to me is an ownership of the mainstream. This is not just a, a few churches that are having Mike Flynn come talk or are encouraging people to form militias. This is a lot of everyday people sitting in pews who are willing to support this kind of stuff and increasingly hearing rhetoric that I think is more hardcore.
1: Is this why in your book you talk about how January 6th you believe – and you even acknowledge like you're not meaning to be hyperbolic, but is, is kind of pregame.
0: Yeah. So I think with January 6th, there's a bunch to talk about there. And I think it's not something we really want to talk about. I think a lot of us are tired of it. A lot of us are just like, OK, it happened. I don't I don't need any more. There were hearings. There was a whole thing. But I, here's the reason I'll, I'll just keep talking about it until as long as anyone will allow me. More people believe the big lie that the election was stolen now than before January 6th. There's a, uh, a higher popularity of Donald Trump now than when he ran in 2016. There's also many communities in the country that look at January 6th as a first battle in a new civil war. There are people who wear Ashley Babbitt uh, badges um, and have flags of her waving. Um, there are political rallies where the American flag that is raised to say the Pledge of Allegiance is a flag that was at January 6th. So it turns into kind of like a relic right? It turns into a sacred object. There are people who think that was the beginning. It may not have been successful, but neither was the Alamo and we're going to remember it and it's going to propel us forward. And so who was at January 6th? Was it all extremists? Was it all malicious? No, it was real estate agents from Dallas suburbs. It was a school board member from my hometown, a 43 year old mom of two who decided to get on a plane and go. Uh, those folks are still sitting in the same pews, listening to the same leaders, the same podcasts, reading the same books, and I just don't think that we fully adjudicated that. That January sixth, politically in our in our country, is not a pariah. It's not the thing we never uh, think of as positive. It's not that moment of of national reckoning. It's one that really highlights the polarization that still remains, and I think it portends a lot of what. We're, we're going to see in the future in terms of that continuing.
1: Thank you for that. I, I feel similarly in why I keep talking about it. <laughs> I'm curious to just pulling back a little bit to how this kind of authoritarianism, we, how we see this play out in the workplaces and in organizations in expected ways that maybe we're not identifying.
0: Authoritarianism is um, is seductive. Let's just be honest. Um, it, it means that one person makes decisions and others can not have the burden of working together to come to a consensus or a majority. So in weird ways, I think we need to just admit that authoritarian leadership alleviates some of the burden of being leaders uh, because a lot of the thinking, a lot of the debating, the working together, the compromising never happens. It's one person telling everyone how it's going to go. However, the trade-off is that it's incredibly hurtful. One person has uh, the power to make decisions in an organization or in a government without consulting the majority, without taking a vote, without having to balance the needs and desires of all stakeholders. And so authoritarianism can creep in to organizations when, and this is, I think, what we see also in our government and in our country, when there's fear of change and there's fear of threat, right? Everyone talks about Mm -hmm. being the kind of leader who wants to listen and dialogue and have a process of um, hearing everyone's voice and coming to a really good strategy for how to uh, to move forward. When there's threat, when there's concern, when there's anxiety, power gets consolidated and one person speaks the loudest and they, mm-hmm. uh, shout down most of the others. And because of the threat, a lot of people are willing to go along with it and say, okay, yeah, let's just follow the leader here and go. Unfortunately, as I said, that leads to, uh, exclusion. It leads to usually very bad leadership choices. Uh, it, whether in the short or long-term. And it leads to an environment that stifles any kind of expression, any kind of sense of equity, any kind of sense of people sharing in the enterprise as those who can voice their concerns or their pain or their needs. Uh, Authoritarians don't allow for that. And so uh, that makes it problematic in any setting.
1: There's folks listening to the show who, whether they're helping professionals, they're small business owners, they're working in larger organizations or corporations, What would you say to them? What are the stakes for them to understand this and really get strategic and finding out ways to respond to this kind of authoritarianism and its pursuit of power as they run their businesses and lead their teams? I
0: have this saying I have for myself now, like I was just on a big family vacation, like family reunion kind of situation, you know, the kind of scenario where there's like over a dozen people staying in the same house and there's grandparents and children and you're like, worried about spouses and brothers and everyone else getting along and wanting to go along with the program. (laughs) All right. What's the point? My motto on that trip was, I knew I was going to have to be the leader of a lot of it, like kind of direct the group. I'm the oldest brother and that's just kind of what I do in the family. But my other motto internally to myself was don't be the problem. Meaning, yes, we need to get things done. We're going to have to get 12 people going in the same direction every day that's totally fine. And we're gonna need someone who's willing to take on some of the planning and the timekeeping and the, hey guys, we gotta get in the car, let's go. That doesn't mean you're allowed to be the problem, right? You don't get to be the one who in the name of getting things done, treats people, right? With anger, with impatience, with selfishness. And so as leaders, I think we have to say to ourselves, yes, there's always gonna be moments of crisis, of concern, of threat. Um, we're going to have to figure out what to do next. Um, in those moments, can I build in a muscle memory, a reflex that says, I'm going to take a breath and yes, I'm going to have to make decisions. Some of those decisions may not be easy, but I'm not going to be the problem. I'm not going to revert to a fight or flight sort of mode where I react with impatience and, and callousness because I'm feeling like I'm in a state of alert. That's easier said than done. But if we can do that more times than not, that that I think prevents us from slipping into that kind of authoritarian mode as leaders, and I think creates a better environment for anyone involved.
1: Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, and your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid about your plan and action. Finding a coach who understands the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold, collaborative work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from your past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is both actionable and aligned. So when the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, and when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then unburdened leader coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation and doing things differently than you were taught to start your unburdened leader coaching process with me go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. So in reading your book, and I I binged a bit of your podcast too, there's this one topic that you touch on that I've, I've in my clinical work especially I've been a bit of a specialist in around purity culture over the years and seen how the intersection it intersects with so many other pieces but the way that you talk about it I was like reading your book and cussing out loud and my husband's like what's happening I'm like this is just huge it's like what and also children and I'm like I'm sorry <laughs> you know <laughs> and I tried to explain it to him and he kind of glossed over a little bit I'm like okay we'll talk about it later because <laughs> I mean, he's he's a historian but he's, he's learning about purity culture for me. And, um, and so you wrote about this deep connection of purity culture with Christian nationalism. So I, just for defining terms, I'd love for you to first define purity culture for those listening, and then walk me through the intersection of purity culture and Christian nationalism and its continued impact. And as we noted in our pre-call, especially on women, but also I want in, in business and wellness, you know, the business and wellness culture, there's that piece there too. So that's a big question for, so first, how do you define purity culture?
0: Yeah. So purity culture is really a a late eighties, nineties phenomenon. And it's, a, it's an ethos of Christian ethics that says that uh, one should remain sexually pure before marriage. So what does sexually pure mean? Well, sexually pure means number one, don't have sex before marriage. Okay. All right. Pretty simple. It also means don't have lustful thoughts or feelings before marriage. And if you do, you are committing adultery. Like you are literally cheating on your future husband, wife, et cetera. So if you are 16 and you have a sexual thought or desire, you have a thought about uh, someone you have a crush on you, whatever may be, that is akin to cheating on your future spouse. Okay. So don't even think about sex. Now, on top of that, there is a really rigid set of gender roles that are introduced into purity. So being pure is not just, hey, I didn't have sex before I married and I did my best not to think about sex at all, even though I'm now 21 years old. That's pretty hard to do. It also means that I ascribed to the gender roles that God wants. And that means that men are understood to be leaders of church, of society, of household. Women are submissive to their husbands. And when it comes to sex and sexual desire, men are ravenous sexual lunatics. They cannot control themselves and it is they are always on the verge of just sexual explosion. Women, on the other hand, and girls, do not want sex for pleasure. They just want sex to feel close to their companion, their their spouse. And so they have to be the gatekeepers of sexual purity. If you're 17 and you're having a kiss goodbye and things get a little... Excited, girl, woman, it's your it's your job to shut it down and and not let this ravenous sex crazed lunatic man go any farther. Well, that puts incredible <laughs> pressure on young girls and women. I mean, and there's been so many great memoirs and books written about this, yep. and there is an existing yep. literature that is so helpful. If you've never read it, please do. Linda K. Klein's Pure, Julie Ingersoll's work. There's there's so much. Sarah Mosner's work.
1: Yep, it, we'll link them all.
0: So purity culture then says this. Your family should be what? It should be a family where there's a man who's the leader, authoritative, sexually ravenous. There should be a wife who's submissive, who is willing to uh, meet his needs sexually. And the children in the family should see their dad as the voice of God in their their home, okay? That is a model for the family. It's also a model for society. That is how purity culture builds from the teenage sexual relationship to the cishet household to how society and church should all look, right? It's like the building blocks. Well, my thesis is that Christian nationalism is the original purity culture because white Christian nationalism, if you do the history all the way from 1630 in the Massachusetts Bay Colony to to the present day, the desire is for what? It's a society that has uh, a white Christian patriarchal structure. It's one that if you're like, hey, what does the American body look like? Hey, tell me, when you think of America what kind of body does it have? Well, it has a straight body. It has a Christian body. It has a patriarchal body. It speaks English with no accent. It's, it's, English is the first language. It's a landowning man, right? Who is uh, in charge of his, his household and his society. Christian nationalism for 400 years has tried to create that kind of, of American uh, way of life. So purity culture is an attempt in the 90s when things started to seem to go awry, when gay people were on television and Bill Clinton was doing things with interns and uh, it was an attempt to reinstitute the Christian nationalist vision of society by throwing all of its desires and all of its wants onto the canvas of teenage flesh. If we can just regulate teenage bodies, maybe we'll eventually get the American body we so badly want. And that seems to be slipping from our fingers. And so purity culture wants white kids to marry white kids in heterosexual marriages, interracial marriage, not explicitly outlawed, but certainly not something people are in love with uh, for the most part, right? It has to be a productive marriage. If you don't have kids, what are you doing? Um, There can be no sense of like equality or uh, a sense where men and women share the same roles. Uh, I could go on and on, but the thesis is Christian nationalism has been purity culture. And when we got to the 90s, there was just launching all of Christian nationalism's like, desires onto this canvas of young people trying to regulate their bodies so we could regulate America. And mm. that's hard.
1: Yeah, your your connection of that was just like a big F-bomb came <laughs> out of my mouth when I read that because I just saw, I mean, I saw it. I, I mean, I've been reading a lot of these other scholars that you've talked about over the years, but when you connected that to... Um, particularly white christian nationalism and it just was like here it is cuz so you think about trying to police and regulate bodies particularly those with uteruses and those who identify as female then and then you see how that plays out i'd love for you to just even riff on how you see that play out in the business of wellness culture which i know it was it predominantly a lot of women and fit this identity yeah where do you see this going kind to of play out there too and there's a big intersection of that with Christian nationalism, with a lot of the conspiracy stuff out there too. Yeah, you know, I think,
0: and I don't want to caricaturize and I, I, I don't want to, you know, this is not my, um, my everyday is is really studying and thinking about why Christian nationalism, the religious right, all that stuff. But I've done work with scholars, uh, especially Susanna Crockford, who are scholars of uh, wellness culture. Um, I talked to, um. Uh, various folks on my show and, and have dug into research. And one of the things that I've seen in terms of overlap is wellness culture often wants to have an ideal type of body and an ideal type of soul. And yep. you know, there's a sense in which if we just do it right, the way we eat, the way we stretch, the way we practice, the way we, um, we take care of our bodies, then we'll have the ideal body. That's where it overlaps with everything I just said, that if you think that there's a way you can kind of shed the impurities of yourself for a pure self, then you might be kind of playing the same game as the Christian Nationalists, just in a, in a, in a tone that is more, akin, uh, more likely to be engaged in organic food and yoga and other stuff, right? And so I think there's a temptation there to then go a step further into conspiracy theory. Because if you want an ideal body and you want an ideal state of life that's pure from anything that you, you consider a, a contaminant, it's really hard to do, actually. Like, it just turns out that that's near impossible, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And that anytime we pursue an ideal body, we we kind of have this sense of that anything that's not ideal about me is wrong, okay? So conspiracy is really actually helpful because it can start to be explanatory as to why things are just always wrong and not how they should be. Oh, we Mm -hmm. would have this pure life. Oh, we would have this pure state. Oh, I would be able to have right? Uh, an unvaccinated kid and we wouldn't need all these medicines if this cabal of elites wasn't get trying to get us, if big pharma wasn't in bed with the, blah, blah, the Illuminati, blah, 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 right? And so there's tons of work going on right now that is showing how during the pandemic, especially wellness communities and white Christian nationalist communities actually started to kind of be weird bedfellows. And I'm sure you can talk about this more than me, so I you know I, I will cede the floor to you, but that's what I'm seeing from my seat at least.:
1: No, no, I just I appreciate that perspective, and and it's it's a conversation I enter in with a lot of care and reverence, um, because a lot a lot of folks are just really wanting to to be safe, to be well, to care for their kids well. And so to me, though, it's more about folks that are exploiting folks with those yeah. needs. To make a lot of money and to achieve a lot of power, and that's really where i want I wanna call b s too not the pursuit of of being you know to being well or to not being in pain, yeah, so i just I just want to name that and yeah the and just back to too the burden on women to take care of of men who have desire, and it's like it, the blame like that that dynamic still plays it out. There's still a lot of pain, a lot of burdens that a lot of folks carry. And, and I think you even touched on at the before we started recording that probably your next book is going to be around this topic of purity culture and men and not to, to say that, you know, poor men, but to just talk about the damage it's done and how they keep perpetuating harm in that sense. So I just think it's important to connect these dots. So folks who are like, you talked about your, your friend from your hometown or a lot of folks are like, I'm just showing up. I'm just contributing to my community. Who are we listening to? Where are we giving our trust? our money, our time, and we've got to stay curious on this. So I want to shift a little bit just to you too. I think this is worthwhile um, to note too with your journey is just your own evolution as a leader from being a teenager leading, you know, hundreds of kids in youth group here every week to the work you're doing today. You're a professor, you're a podcaster, you're an author, you're a parent. Just I'd love for you to talk about how you see your own evolution as a leader.
0: What I've discovered is I've changed so much over the last 15 years, my life, my beliefs, all of that is really transformed. But my leadership style has remained consistent in this sense. Hmm. Um, you know, when I was a youth minister, I loved it because I had and I know there's like so many jokes about youth pastors that I'm here for all of them. Don't get me wrong. So please, you know, send them my way. But here's what I loved. Like when I was 14, I converted. And the reason I converted, I got invited to church by like my girlfriend uh, and I didn't have any interest in church. I just wanted to see if I could. A, it's the
1: cute boys for me. It yeah. was the cute boys for me too. I mean, come on.
0: But what I met at church were these leaders who were like 21, 22, 25. They cared about me. They wanted to talk to me. I had like hair that was three different colors. I dressed like a punk um, and they didn't say, get out of here. They They were like, who are you? What's your story? So when I became a youth minister, that was the thing that gave me the most joy was like, this is a space where everyone's going to be included. And I'm going to find something special about every kid that walks through here. And when they come in, they're going to, they're going to be like, I'm safe here. And I get to enjoy being me in in a place where all like adults recognize who I am. And so, you know, some kids that's easy, right? They're, they're really socially adept and they come in and they're happy and they're they're super stoked to be at summer camp. There's other kids, right, that are not used to fitting in. They're just at school, it's hard. And you find that thing about them, you take them out to lunch, you, you listen to, their, to them talk about who they are, and then they feel included. And that was so, I think, to me, addictive, because I just felt so good to like, provide people a place to live and exist that, where they could be themselves. If I fast forward now, like I've taught so many years as a professor at liberal arts colleges, right? So I have classes that are like 10 students, you know, eight students, 15 students, four students. And my approach there, and my colleagues rarely listen to me about this when they talk about everyone wants to talk about pedagogy and like, how do we teach? And, and I'm here for it. That's great. Good. Let's do the pedagogy. Sounds fun. A lot of my pedagogy throughout the years, I'll be very honest with everybody, has been I get to class 10 minutes early. And every kid that walks in, I'm like, yo, what's up? Jennifer, good to see you. You're on the basketball team, is that right? Yeah, cool, okay, how's it going? What position do you play? Great, like, where do you where did you grow up again? I can't remember. Oh, yeah, got it, San Diego, okay, right? And throughout the semester, it's just asking questions of students like they're human beings and like they matter. And when you have like a group of eight or 10, you can do that, you can remember names, you know where their hometown is, you know that they're really into like Frisbee golf, and uh, they love, um, you know, the summers, being at summer camp because they're into horses and helping kids. And you see them on campus and you ask them how it's going. You see them on campus and you say, hey, how's your poli-sci major? Like, did you pass that test? And all of a sudden, right, you're, you're back to being somebody who's creating a community where people feel like they matter, where they're significant, where somebody wants to know who they are as a human being. And then in class, they wanna discuss, they wanna participate. They want to let their guard down and actually contribute. They don't feel like they're going to get attacked or like they're not sure if they um, are safe to speak up. and you have this dynamic um, discussion and people really want to get into the material and it changes the feeling of of their room. And so as a leader, whether that is like a youth pastor, whether that is a professor, whether that's now somebody who does a podcast and um, you know has a, a community that's digital and online, you know the to me the the number one thing has always been Treat everyone like they matter, and everyone like their story has significance and if you're willing to do that in a way that they trust, then you're halfway there to having them um, as somebody who wants to be part of what you're up to um, it's not easy, but um I don't know I don't know any other way to do it, and I know that there's probably people out there that are like that's inefficient and um
1: so I'm just curious i want, i want to push you a little bit on this, but you know I mean, having worked in the youth workspace too I mean we know intellectually asking the questions, getting them to open up, you know, those things work. But I think there's also the sense of the person doing the asking, what is your intent? What is your heart? What's your motivation? I'm curious for you that you've kind of had this evolution and over the last, uh, you know, couple of decades, how do you view success? And what does success look like for you today? And how is this different from what you were taught?
0: It's just so easy to get it. I live in California. I live in the Bay Area at the moment, and there's so much like Silicon Valley, and success is measured by influence and by money, and it's hard not to get sucked into that culture and to think that way. And um, and I think that's a lifelong temptation that we ma- we manage success in terms of our uh, how many people follow us, how many people, how much money we have, and that has not gone away for me as I've gotten older. I mean, I'm a professor and a former pastor, like. Uh, you know, wealth was never, uh, on the table. <laughs> um, so it's easy to get like, Oh, what would that be like? Um, and when I come back to myself, uh, I, I, I have a, an understanding of success that really just comes back to, um, what is meaningful? Um, why, and this is going to sound really strange and I apologize if people don't get it, but I come back to this question. Why are we alive? right and that sounds like i don't know maybe F- philosophy 101 freshman class or i don't know it sounds like a sermon title or something but you know you can you can think about all the aspirations for wealth or status or followers or uh, influence and then you come back to a place where you're you know you're you're able to bring your kids to a mother's day lunch with their grandmothers or um you're able to have a moment where your two-year-old is, is wearing her um, traditional Japanese you know uh, cover and going to uh, like a, a festival with your dad in Japantown. Um, or you're able, right, to just enjoy a moment um, where you're like, with someone you love, you're safe, you're uh, connected, and uh, you're enjoying a moment of what feels like a sense of intimacy and trust. That's success, and it's really easy to miss that. It's easy to, easy to write those things off as like small, and not like success should be this great journey towards uh, excellence and achievement and standing on top of a mountain. And believe me, I'm I'm very driven. Like I I I do too much. My wife is always saying like Please do less, and we don't need to do 19 projects. We could do 16, maybe or 12, or maybe one like a normal person. So this is none of this as a means of like not wanting to work hard to achieve to uh, set goals. It's more like success is living a life that has meaning. Why am I doing those things? And I want to come back to that every day. Like I want to come back to like every day. Like, why am I alive? And I think the pandemic taught us this. Life is so oh, yeah. fragile. Life is so fragile. Being human is so embarrassing. It's so embarrassing to be a human being. It's it's the most. Oh effing embarrassing thing to ever be a human, you know? Because you show up to this world naked, crying, and you got no idea where you came from. That's so embarrassing. You didn't want to be here, but you are. And you may not want to leave, but you have to. And you're always in between. You'll never be safe from either end. You're always vulnerable. You're always open to a mortal wound. To be human is to be wounded. There's And there's no, no. curing that condition it is incurable. Like the human condition is an incurable one. So the
1: question- No, no, no. But if we go back to the fifties, maybe we could cure And that's
0: the thing is like, this is why nostalgia is so seductive because we want a cure to our condition, right? I want the garden of Eden to be the thing I get to go back to. I want the fifties to be the place when I was safe. I want there to be two genders because if there is, it makes sense to me. And it's just so it's just so scary to be human and deal with that change. So it's easy to be like, yeah, nostalgia will fix that, right? Or I'll find a I'll find a leader that will fix me. And going back to being a leader, if you ever promise to fix people, you you went wrong. Because there is no fixing human beings. There is simply a way that we can live in this embarrassing condition with meaning, significance, and value. And if that's that's what the human condition is. And to create, to sing, to break bread together, to open up a a space where you can connect, to write, to play, those are ways that this curse and embarrassing condition can be overcome with wonder. But we overlook it half the time because we wanna do other stuff and be successful and have 100,000 followers and whatever else. And so I'm just embarrassed every day to be human, but I'm pretty excited about it too. And I think that's the best we can do.
1: Sitting with the polarities and the tensions and upping our capacity for discomfort for sure. Well, I think that's a great note to, I want to say end, I think pause, because I have a feeling I'm going to want you back on this show. I'd love to wrap up with just some traditional, fun, quick fire questions. And I'm curious, what are you reading right now?
0: Uh, Always too much reading um, uh, Middlesex, which is a, Popular book like about a decade, well, six, seven years ago. It's a long novel. Uh, it's really good about an intersex person. Uh, reading uh, Hitler's American Example, which is a book about how Hitler learned a lot from the United States and its racial division when uh, putting together his stuff. And I am always reading the McGray series by uh, Simonon. It's like French detective novels. That is my vice if you want to know. Where I give in a temptation at night, it is by reading French detective novels. So that's it.
1: <laughs> what song are you playing on repeat right now?
0: Unfortunately, the Moana soundtrack, because that's what my daughter wants to listen to. No, I, okay. I can I can recite it uh, verbatim. Yeah.
1: I thought you were going to say Rich Mullins for a moment. No. <laughs> Just kidding. Sorry, I no. couldn't help it. Even though I have a special place in my heart for Rich. What is the best TV show or movie you've seen recently?
0: So, um... We have two shows we watch right now. One is Ted Lasso, and one is Secession. Um, so I think Secession is oh really—I know—talk
1: about polarities. It's
0: like one 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 night of uh, of just utter human viciousness, and another of uplifting, semi corny, uh, you know, stuff. But uh, yeah, so those those are the two that uh, we watch right now, and I I like both of them.
1: What is your favorite piece of eighties pop culture?
0: Um, that's a good question. So my brothers and I watched Back to the Future as a series, maybe a hundred times. So we watched Back to the Future when it came out. We kept watching it. So we've watched that movie, that set of movies, so many times. We've also watched the Karate Kid, the original Karate Kid movies. Oh, the Mr. Miyagi, Daniel San ones.
1: Waxon, Waxon, um, yes.
0: So those have a big place in my heart for sure. Um. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. Those two really stick out.
1: So what is your mantra right now?
0: Um, my mantra is, two, I have two. One is don't be the problem. And that mm. like when I'm, when I'm in a leadership position, uh, when I'm in my family, when I'm anywhere, uh, am I the one who's acting in a way that's like selfish or impulsive or impatient or um, anything ab- above? The other is acceptance for me having a little kid um and having another one on the way means just accepting Mm. like hey we're gonna go on this vacation it should take two hours to get there it took eight hours well that happens yep we had to change diapers and eat and feed and calm down because somebody was crying and that's okay yes things didn't get done today like i wanted i accept it it's not that we didn't do our best it's just that's how life is right now And so I'm going to accept where we're at, not as a way of compromise or giving in, but as a way of saying, I don't always get what I want. Things are not always going to go how I planned. It's not going to be perfect. And that doesn't mean it's bad. It just means we did what we could.
1: What's an unpopular opinion that you hold?
0: Oh, man, I have so many of these. Um, So like we should be totally done with James Bond. Like James Bond should Ooh. end at 20, like 25. And I lived in the UK for so many years. I have so many UK friends who I've told this to. There's been fist fights. There's been, you know, turntables. Yeah. tables. Uh, there's no reason that anyone should ever get a burger at Shake Shack because there are, it's trash compared to five guys are in and out. So just take that Shake Shack. I don't know if Shake Shack sponsors this, um,
1: no. this no. Uh,
0: show, but if it does, you're going to have to edit this out. So I think no. that's another one. We're um, safe. Yeah. So I think that's there. Um, I think San Jose, where I live, is the best immigrant food city in the country. So take that Los Angeles and New York. Y'all can look down on San Jose, but uh, I'll defend it till I die. And the food here it will rival anyone's in the country. I'm just going to put it there. And if you don't believe me, come to San Jose and find out because it's amazing. Um, I could go on. I have so many um, <laughs> that my, I, I give these to my students and they think I'm crazy, but I don't care.
1: I love it, and who or what inspires you to be a better leader in human?
0: My daughter, first of all, um I think that's 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 a pretty common one, and that's I think that's one that many people will uh, identify with um my dad's another, and I just have a I have a deep sense of the idea that you know if we go back to that embarrassing condition of being human, um one of the ways that we make meaning of that condition is by inheritance and anticipation and by giving ourselves ways to hand people, meaning our children and our, our younger generations, ways of overcoming the curse I talked about with wonder. And so my dad's done that with me and you try to do that with your own kids and, it, and you start to see a chain form and it starts to be really meaningful. And so I think thinking about it in those terms, um, you know, helps me come back to what's important.
1: Where can people find you if they wanna connect with you and your work?
0: Yeah, I'm on social media at Bradley Onishi. My website's bradonishi.com. And I do a podcast called Straight White American Jesus. We don't think Jesus was straight white or American, but we want to figure out why people do. And uh, we talk about Christian nationalism and the religious right three days a week. Um, So yeah, those are the main places and happy to talk or hang out when folks contact me.
1: Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a really rich and fruitful conversation. And just just been a real honor to listen and learn from you. Thank you for your time.
0: Thanks for having me. Honored to be here and really appreciate it.
1: Wow, wow, wow. Brad left us with a lot to think about from how nostalgia is used to weaponize public opinion, to the importance of stating white when saying Christian supremacy culture, to the long and challenging process of deconstructing your beliefs and world view, system, and rebuilding your community and identity in that deconstruction process. And I can't stop thinking about when Brad shared his idea and perspective that the original purity culture stems from white Christian supremacy culture through how it polices young bodies, particularly female bodies, in ways to garner control over culture and our country. I mean, mind blown, as I connected the dots that he connected in our conversation. Now we move in and out of various groups with cultish or high demand tendencies, yes. And we have the power to call in and call out and identify these groups, name our experiences to help decrease their power. And I think more importantly, to help others feel less alone and more empowered to make the changes that they need to. And this is the ongoing work of an unburdened leader. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. If this episode positively impacted you, I would be honored and grateful if you left a rating, a review, and shared it with a few people you think may be interested. All of these actions help more people hear about the show. And you can find this show and its show notes and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www. @rebeccaching.com and I am so grateful to the incredible team at Yellow House Media who helped me produce today's episode.